Well, in this half hour, we'll talk about the future. Um, it, this is a technology that can be used to edit genes as such and will likely have a huge impact on the world. It's called CRISPR. The essence is simple. It's a way of finding a specific bit of DNA inside a cell. After that, the next step in CRISPR, uh, gene editing is usually to alter that piece of DNA. Uh, but CRISPR can also be a adapted to do other things, uh, as in turning genes on and off without altering their sequence. So there's all kinds of possibilities in terms of being used to help fight disease, being used to help fight genetic disease, being used to help uh, all kinds of stuff. At the same time, there's always concerns uh, that it can be used for unethical reasons. Um, and that's one of the concerns that scientists have had. One cautionary tale was the subject of a documentary that just premiered at Toronto's Hot Docs Festival a few weeks ago called Make People Better. It tells the story of a Chinese scientist called Dr. He Jianque, who crossed a so-called Rubicon in human evolution by altering the genetic structure of embryos to produce the world's first genome-edited babies. He was severely reprimanded for it. He wound up in jail. The documentary tells that story, as well as the broader story about gene editing, where the benefits of it, and the potential pitfalls as well. Many scientists are concerned that the public is not part of this process, and international scientific communities recognize that the social, ethical, and medical benefits and risks of gene editing technologies need to be better understood by all of us so that we can all decide what the future will look like. Well, joining me now with more is Samira Kiani. She's a professor of genetic engineering at the University of Pittsburgh. She's also co-producer of that documentary I was making, or I was mentioning, Make People Better. Uh, Samira Kiani, thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. So excited to be here. Uh, I'll start at the beginning. Perhaps explain to our listeners what it is that you do and what CRISPR is. Um, well, um, I am a CRISPR scientist, and that's a very good question. What is CRISPR? Well, CRISPR is actually uh, something that we call um, like a, um, a genetic surgeon. It is a system um, that was adapted from bacteria a while ago. And in, 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 in nature, it is the immune system of bacteria to ward off uh, the, the pathogen, the viruses that infect them. So bacteria evolve the system to protect themselves. We can take it and somehow use it to change our DNA code. So this is essentially allows you, you to... To edit genes, is that right? Yes, editing genes, which means that we change the letters of DNA code in any way we want. So, so your research, I understand, involves something called somatic gene editing. And a, a lot of what you've been talking about of late is something called germline editing. Uh, what are they and what are the differences? Somatic editing is changing the DNA code of your cells, all the cells that make up your body, except for the egg and sperm. Mm -hmm. Egg and sperms carry the genetic information for the next generation. And they're somehow protected in this sac in the body that doesn't allow other things that you know, circulate in the blood to get into them. So you can essentially change the DNA code of your skin cells, your liver cells, your kidney cells, and those change stays with an individual in their entire life and don't pass on to the next generation. But when you change the DNA code of an egg or a sperm, 
or basically an embryo that is formed after, you know, egg and sperm meet, those signs of changes can be transferred to the next generation and the generation after that. That is called germline editing. And that's the part that creates a lot of debate and cautions for us. You've compared the state of gene editing in general, germline editing, I, I imagine, to where the internet was 25 years ago. And I guess part of that is what you just brought up is this sort of a lot of advances very quickly and everything else trying to catch up, you know, uh, regulatory, ethical, trying to catch up to it. How did you make that comparison? I think because when the internet technology started and in, in general, kind of like the smartphone type of technology, some people were skeptic about it. And then they started accepting it without really understanding, you know, what is going on. They just accepted that because everyone else was actually adopting the smartphone and kind of like they were seeing how their lives were easier. And then about 25 years later, they, they just were exposed to all other questions around this, all the other, these aftermaths uh, around this, which include data privacy, um, you know, uh, ownership of all of our information, and how we are now presented by information in social media, for instance, like, for instance, if you go into Instagram feed, and look at your feed, you see more and more the things that you're interested in. So all of these things is that, you know, they learn about your data, and they just kind of like, present you this information, is this the type of world we want? to be controlled by these information around us. So I think in, 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 in some way, genetic technologies or genetic revolution is similar to internet revolution. We are at the cusp of it right now because we are skeptical right now what will happen if, for instance, we start to manipulate the DNA code of our babies. Unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know which way the technology will move on. And that's how it has been in, in, in over the years and, and you know historically. And then the public will catch on. You know, you see, you will see, for instance, you know, people start adopting it at some point. And as a parent, you would think, okay, I have this responsibility to my my next generation, to my kids to give them a healthy life or a prosperous life. Do I want to do that? Or should I just like not do that? At some point, you will be pushed towards, you know, accepting that and start adopting that. And then maybe not knowing exactly what you're getting into that. And maybe like 25, 50 years from now, you start understanding the implication or aftermath of that, or maybe somehow um, the side effects that happen when you adopt that in terms of, okay, you know, now we would face uh, a situation when we have started to create all these, you know, human beings, that their genome is created by design by our human being, and we don't have enough knowledge of the biology to know what would happen. So what if that creates a, a lot of um, of its own problems in terms of what it means to be human, what it means in our relationship together, what it means in our relationship to ourselves and our kids. And, and also, you know, what type of side effects will happen in terms of, you know, biology itself, because we don't know. Of. So I think we don't want to get to that point. We don't want to adopt it just because it is, it is uh, presented to us. It is, it is available. And then 25 years later, we say, oh my God, we should have thought about this and that before actually going that path and widely adopt this technology. My hope is that, uh, you know, through the works that myself and my colleagues do, or the film that we just put out, we start a conversation about, okay, what does this really mean? What are the, the benefits of it? But 
what are the costs associated with it, and uh, not as only how we want to achieve that future, but whether we want to achieve this or not. Yeah, I mean, it's been called a technology that will revolutionize life to some extent. And I know there are a million potential benefits and there are many things to be concerned about. Uh, quickly, though, what are some of the real benefits we could see from this in terms of genetic modification? I think we've already started to see parts of it. And what are some of the real the re- you've spoken of the real dangers, which is not being able to control the outcomes, designer babies, for instance. Yeah. Um, the real benefit is that, I mean, what I call somatic gene editing provides a tremendous opportunity for a lot of genetic patients with inherited genetic diseases, right? Um, but, you know, you basically... Uh, you target their their adult cells, their you know cells in their different organs, not their reproductive organs, but other organs that they have these genetic mutation, and you can correct that. And you already see that some of these uh, patients are receiving CRISPR uh, clinical trial, like um, for instance, um, uh, you know some of the blood disorders, sickle cell anemia, for instance, is is in the cusp of receiving CRISPR gene therapy. In addition, CRISPR, we are not talking about not only uh, the therapeutic potential only. It has a lot of value in uh, the diagnostic, uh, you know, uh, field, meaning that you could use CRISPR to detect uh, the genome of viruses or other pathogen, and that can provide a very fast, you know, way of detection of new pathogens. And CRISPR can do that for us. Uh, it has also potential in creating food and other type of genetically modified. But you know, the harm can be, you know, okay, once you develop these technologies to to help cure the genetic diseases or other inherited diseases, the knowledge that you've gained can be applied to to manipulation in any other genes in the body, because the same technique applies to changing any, you know, gene that we want. And what if that change of the gene applies to to genes that, you know, create vanity traits, like, uh, you know, the traits that we somehow associate with, you know, beauty or better race or things like that. That's not the type of the world you want to create. You want you don't want to design human. You want to honor and respect the diversity that nature created over the millions and millions of years of uh, evolution. I'm speaking with Samira Kiani, a professor of genetic engineering at the University of Pittsburgh and producer of Make People Better, a documentary about uh, genetic modification in babies, which premiered at Hot Docs in Toronto a few weeks ago. We'll talk a bit more about the cautionary tale that is your documentary after this. I'm speaking with Samira Kiani, a professor of genetic engineering at the University of Pittsburgh and producer of Make People Better, which premiered at Hot Docs in Toronto a few weeks back. We're talking about uh, genetic engineering, essentially, uh, through uh, CRISPR, uh, essentially reworking the genetic code uh, for both good and you know, the concerns over what could be done that would be unethical when it comes to that sort of manipulation, that sort of ability to change the very foundation of life. Uh, Samira, the movie you worked on is an interesting cautionary tale. It happened in China. It involved a doctor who you met, um, who went ahead with this sort of uh, research uh, that turned out to be quite concerning, as your documentary points out. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that was, um, you know, we have started, we had started filming for about two years before that very uh, um, kind of important meeting in in China. Once we met him, that really changed the course of this film and the course of 
you know, his career and the way I myself, you know, view um, how this technology will move forward. So it's kind of like that was a very, very uh, important moment in CRISPR. What was Dr. Um, What was Dr. Hood doing? What what, what was doing and what what was he doing and what were the outcomes and the consequences? So um, the, well, what he told us in that meeting was that he wanted to, um, at some point, um, engineer human being to be resistant to uh, HIV because HIV and AIDS uh, is a very important social uh, stigma in, in China. And there are a number of people who were infected with HIV. So that was important for him to actually create these people in you. What he showed us in that meeting was that, you know, he was creating this plat- steps to get to that point. He was not there yet. He had created, you know, he had tested this in animal models and he had done some surveys with people to, to see whether they are okay with, you know, creating these gene-edited babies who are immune to HIV. And he was talking about this plan within the next year or two that he wanted to recruit couple for clinical trial to see if that's you know, doable and safe to do uh, for human application. What we learned later on was that he had actually... Um, created um, a twin baby at that point when we met, the babies were born. So he had basically started that already. And he had created this twin babies, uh, a non-Lulu twin girl um, that had one of their gene mutated or disabled that was supposed to give them immunity against HIV. So there's whole, you know, another debate about whether what he did was exactly accurate safe and so on. But that was what happened. He had created the baby and obviously he was looking for an insider, like a colleague uh, uh, who could talk to and who also was in, you know, film, he got into media and documentary filmmaking. He got into huge huge trouble. He got into huge trouble for this. He did. And because we had a film, we had a journalist with us uh, um, who actually went ahead and looked for more clues about this and, uh, published the story, leaked out the story basically a month later, and the huge scientific backlash and you know scientific community internationally kind of like um, condemned him and said that he was a rogue scientist and um, basically he went into prison for that for three years. He's actually out of prison. He got out of prison um, a month ago. Have you spoken to him? I haven't yet. Um, I, and there's, uh, I have reached out to him, and um, I think we we are trying. Our team is trying to uh, set up a time to talk to him. Uh, he doesn't want to talk on the record. I have a few more quick questions for you in our last minute here. Um, you think this work though may still be going on behind closed doors? There's a lot about this that we do not see and do not know, or or the general public does not know. There's a lot that. Um, well, the technology is moving forward. Obviously, after that, uh, the, the genetic engineering community is putting uh, guidelines and regulation on how, on how to move forward safely. And the research is moving forward. Um, the research in non, we call it non-viable human embryo is going on in the US, in the UK. And so researchers are, are trying to find ways to make it safer and safer. Um, uh, and yeah, and at some point uh, within the next 10 or 20 years, um, I think the technology will be available. Um, obviously, in the beginning, there will be a lot of regulation to make it really limited to conditions which 
are absolutely essential. Um, and, and there's no other way of addressing, for instance, a genetic disease, and that would be only through germline editing. But that's a Pandora box. When you open it, you know, it's out there. And regulation, obviously, um, quickly, regulation's having trouble keeping up. This is a technology that doesn't recognize boundaries. And even if you do regulation, have regulation in the, um, in the U.S., U.K., and other places, there are so many other countries that can adopt the technology. There's no medical regulation. I think about 30 or 40 countries don't have any medical regulation. So basically, the whole medical tourism kind of like uh, industry, I mean, this will... You know, that that's that's to me is kind of like the part that requires a lot of public information and public debate, because once it's out, it can move on without any uh, you know regulation from international agencies or governmental agencies. Samira Kiani, I know that informing the public is one thing that you think is very important about this uh, this whole topic. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to do that tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Ben. It was uh, great talking to you and thank you for your listeners to listen to us.